Sure, put the youth pastor on stage in the World Cup in a snowstorm. <sighs> Fine. Thanks for being here. It's not a popularity contest, I know. But I would really like to be more popular than Brian. Merry Christmas, if I don't get the chance to say it to you again in the next week. Um, it's my favorite time of year, which if you remember, I preached last year um, during Advent on Peace, and I talked a lot about how I love Christmas. If you've been in my office, you'll know that I really love Christmas and that I take decorating for Christmas quite seriously. I love Christmas. Um, but I have to tell you something. I really, 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 really hate Hallmark movies. <laughs> I know, which for some of you, you're quite appalled at me. Um, and I know that these cheesy Hallmark Christmas videos are like a staple for so many people in this Christmas season. You know what I mean when I say the Hallmark videos, right? Like those terribly written, ultra cheesy movies. They, they're not even in the theaters. They're only on like specific channels and they play them all day long, um, especially in the Christmas season. And it's not, they're not just Hallmark. There are a couple other companies that produce them, but Hallmark is by far the worst offender. <sighs> like, you know, they're the type of video where like this fancy rich woman goes skiing and all of a sudden she bumps her head, has a case of amnesia, yeah falls, like falls to, into the lap of like a handsome tree farmer and then gets to spend Christmas with this guy. I know, like it's just ridiculous. And you know, she's got all of, the, and then all of a sudden she gets her memory back because it's Christmas. And then she's got to decide between, you know, this rich fancy job in the big city, because it's always in the big city, or like a life of love with this cute Christmas tree farmer. And so then, she picks love because, duh, it's a Hallmark movie. And then magically, in some sort of like Christmas magical like miracle, the Christmas tree farmer inherits like millions of dollars. So like she gets love and money at the same time. And then they like wrap it up with this big bow and they're like, Merry Christmas. It's awful. <laughs> like I can predict the whole movie like by the opening scene. I really don't like them. And I'm, unfortunately, my best friend loves them. <sighs> and so we have this deal where I watch one a year, one. And she has to bribe me with the good snacks and I'm entitled to every sarcastic comment that I want. And it's, it's a torturous 90 minutes because also Hallmark movies are like confined to like a 90 minute mark because apparently that's what they do. See, I love Christmas, but I really hate Hallmark Christmas movies. And I just probably will never love them because they are too predictable, too cheesy, too perfect, and they resemble nothing like real life. And I don't think I like these movies because they oversimplify the struggles of real life, or the struggles are completely unrealistic. The struggles of the movie feel completely disingenuine to the uh, human experience. And yet somehow, the struggles managed to fix themselves on Christmas Eve, just in time before the big dinner or the tree lighting or whatever, in the name of Christmas magic. The movie manages to wrap it all up with this pretty bow and it's done. And I think sometimes we make the same mistake with the Christmas story. 
It looks like this wonderful, lovely, soft, gentle Christmas story with this like perfect happy ending, and yet I can read the Christmas story and I don't get that vibe sometimes. I think the Christmas story is wildly unpredictable. It's full of complications, and I don't actually think that it ends with this really simple resolved ending. Because in the beginning of the Advent story, we meet Elizabeth. She's a mother who has a miracle child, and then her husband goes mute. We have her cousin, Mary, big character. Um, she's visited by an angel, unpredictable, because you know there's only a couple of those instances in the Bible. And then the angel goes on to tell her that she's miraculously pregnant. Again, probably not anything that she saw coming as a teenager. Oh, but, you know, this isn't just a baby. This is the son of God you get to raise. Hallmark has nothing on this. So then an angel speaks to Joseph in a dream. He's going to be a dad, but it's not your son. And everyone is going to gossip about it for the next 2,000 years. We've got an angel appearance, but this time it's to shepherds and sheeps, little sheeps. Uh, in a field. And then all of a sudden, it's not just an angel, it's a host of angels. And then a star, a, just, just a star, leads magi. These people from afar all of a sudden are led by one shining star. That Hallmark might have predicted. But all while this is going on, there's this census. So everyone is traveling around and bustling and just adding all these complications and rigmarole for Mary and Joseph. So it brings all these questions up, like, well, how is this baby gonna save the world? When exactly is this child gonna save the world? Any tips on how to parent the Son of God? I'm not a parent, but like that would be a lot of overwhelming feelings. Um, and then like really this like crux moment of the story, um, the Son of God was laid in a manger and so it's not really what anyone predicted. Yes, there were prophecies from the Old Testament that we read um, about the coming Savior, but they weren't that detailed. And when they said a humble king, I'm not really sure they meant, oh, look, a tiny baby. Even with the promise of his coming, Jesus's arrival was interesting. And then in, in Matthew, we see the Magi coming to meet Jesus, and then it has this whole piece about how King Herod wants to kill Jesus. Super uplifting. And that's the nativity story. The stories in Matthew and Luke both skip to John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism. And it's kind of this weird ending, this major story event of Jesus coming into the world. Except, of course it's happy, the Savior has come but perhaps the most unpredictable part, and certainly tells me the part, uh, tells me that the Christmas story doesn't end with this happy resolved ending, was the fact that this tiny little baby came to die. The son of God's birth in the major is a tremendous gift of love, not because he came, but why he came. In this week of Advent, we are in love. And it's one of these things in our faith that has layers upon layers of meaning. We could talk about love for several hours and never cover it all, but you all want to leave at some point today. Um, but this is where I think the Hallmark movies fail us. 
they of course try and show this type of love. Um, and honestly, the whole commercial side of Christmas tries to do this, but they just can't grasp that true love of Christmas. They certainly try when they gather the family all together for a meal or when the handsome tree farmer falls in love with the amnesia skier. All of this fails to capture what this faith-defining love actually is. We can use words like humility, selfless, perfect, beautiful, big, abounding, righteous, all great words that help broaden our understanding. And we have 1 Corinthians 13, which Peter just read out, and this gives us this list that love is patient, it's kind, it's honoring, respectful. It is not envious, it's humble. It's not quick to anger. Love doesn't hold grudges. It celebrates the good, it protects, it's trustworthy, and it always perseveres. And it's really hard to grasp because love is God's identity. Love, God is love. It's like this. Thing. Um, we're going to open our Bibles now to First uh, John chapter four. Uh, we're going to read seven through sixteen. You can pull out a Bible. You can pull out your phone. Use an app, or you can read it on the screen. Let's read together, dear friends. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us the gift of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the, God, or on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. So John wrote this letter explaining the source of love, God. He's trying to explain that God is love and also gives love. God's love is something that we receive, but it's also something that we respond with. God's love is, is what allows us to love others, and by loving others, that is the evidence of loving God. God sending his son was both the revelation of God's love, that is how God showed his love, and is also the very essence of love himself. And our reflection is a, or our love is a reflection of God's love. Do you get that? I said love a lot of times. <sighs> love, 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 love. Verse 9 says, This is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. It's a key point in our faith, so it's not an unfamiliar point, but it's kind of wild to think about. God sent his son. We can talk about the sacrifice of the Father, 
which is probably a whole other sermon, but I want to sit and think for a moment about the sacrifice of the son. Jesus left heaven, left this perfect whole presence of the Trinity, which I know is a theological brain swamp, but go with me. So here's Jesus and all the cosmic powers of the universe. And then he goes, itty bitty baby. And like Jesus was sent from the side of heaven from his father to be with broken and dysfunctional humans and deliberately came as a baby who is completely dependent on these broken humans. And it's worth thinking about for a few minutes about the fact that the savior of the world came as a baby. I mean, hence it is Christmas, but there is a whole pile of theology that explains that this is important because it helps us understand the humanity of Jesus, but we don't have time for that today. But in all the ways that the Savior could arrive, he came as a baby. If Jesus came as an adult, I wonder what our first reaction would have been. Um, He is God, so in theory, Jesus could have showed up at the ripe age of 30 and could have just wandered out of a cave and started doing miracles. But the fact that we met Jesus as a helpless baby endears us in a way to him. Spurgeon says, being laid in a manger, he did, as it were, give an invitation to the most humble to come to him. Jesus was born in the most humbling way. And as he was laid in a manger, he was declared the king of the poor. The shepherds were welcomed and able to approach this throne. It wasn't the elite or the powerful that came to visit him first, but the humble and the meek. And Jesus was born in a town in the middle of a census. The town was bustling of people and travelers, and yet it was a humble beginning surrounded by those with a similar status as Jesus would spend his ministry years with. Here he is, the promised king, the savior, the prince of peace, all of these wonderful titles that were prophesied about him, and he is born in a manger. Class excursions are unknown here, and there are no forms of etiquette required to entering a stable. Jesus' birth offers us this gift. If you desire to come to Christ, you may come to him just as you are. This gift of love has no requirements to come. We might tremble to approach a throne, but we cannot fear to approach a manger. Jesus came as a baby, understanding that he would be loved and surrounded by people who were broken. He was completely dependent on people he helped create, and it's a completely vulnerable position to come in, and yet he came, proving that he is God with us. And so we celebrate. Happy birthday, Jesus, indeed. And that's where the Hallmark movie would end. But it, isn't, it doesn't end for us here, Yes, we celebrate the fact that our Savior was born, but he came because he came to die. And it's funny that we, here in 2022, celebrate Christmas at the end of the year, because in the liturgical calendar, the Christian calendar, that marks seasons like Advent, Easter, and Pentecost, and also a season called Ordinary Time, 
Not my favorite. Unlike our, our Gregorian calendar that starts with January and ends with December, the liturgical calendar doesn't end with Advent because Jesus is coming. It actually starts with Advent to remind us why Jesus even came in the first place. So don't get me wrong. I love Christmas. It's still my favorite holiday. I am still going to obsessively decorate. Uh, it's a very important holiday. But the birth of Jesus is not the main point of our faith. Easter is. The birth of Jesus um, proves that Jesus did come and fulfilled all of these prophecies and hopes of our Savior. But our Jesus chose to give us freedom over death, and that required Easter. Christmas is meant to take us from the level of spiritual maturity where we are capable of seeing the manger, uh, in a manger, the meaning of an empty tomb. And if Advent is a time to hold the tension of the now and the not yet, this reality that Jesus came and is coming again, we hold that with love too. We know that Jesus came as a baby, died on a cross for us, and left us with the command to love God and to love others until Jesus comes again. So we're waiting. We're waiting for Christ to come again. Except we're not sitting around staring at our thumbs with nothing to do. We've been called to action. We're called to love. Flipping back onto John's words on love, I think, I think we can think that we're following Jesus by talking a lot about love, but by thinking loving thoughts isn't the same as loving one another. We can confuse talking about the thing with actually doing the thing, which is why when we interact with this love, our only response is transformation. This word love that John uses, in, and also Paul in 1 Corinthians, is the Greek word agape. It's a love that is different from romantic love. It's more than a family love, and it is more than the love between close friends. And while we might catch glimpses of this agape love in those types of relationships, um, those loves are not the full picture of love that we're talking about here. This agape is an, an action word. It's sacrificial, generous, and it is unconditional, expecting nothing in return. It's the love that creates and sustains and frees and rescues and redeems and renews and resurrects. It's the love that lets us embrace joy and lament together. It's the love that lowers mountains and raises valleys and makes peace. It's the love that hopes still and always. And it is a choice to put the well-being of others before yourself, setting the ultimate standard of loving your enemy, which I know you're all very familiar with because I preached that sermon back in the spring. Remember when we went through that whole sermon series on loving that neighbor? You're very familiar with this. You're like pros in this area already because you listened so well to the Holy Spirit. Um, but this, this is what imitates the love of God. Choosing to love like this is actually very vulnerable. Choosing to love like this isn't predictable at all. It isn't wrapped with a pretty bow at the end, and I often think that this kind of love has us asking more questions than we ever get answers to. And I think this kind of love gets us into the nitty-gritty with each other. It allows us to lean into the God of love in a way that we can't depend on ourselves. It's scary 
to be loved by broken people who could fail us at any time. But that's what Jesus experienced. He knew, and, and still experiences, um, he knew he was going to be hurt, and he still loved them, even though they could never return it. The act to choose love is what I think John is getting at when he says that his love is made complete in us. As humans, we're pretty broken. We're inherently selfish. So to love others selflessly is to love God. We have to rely on the God of love to give us love and then to love others in return. Love comes full circle. And that is God's spirit at work in us, giving a gift to allow us to give a gift to others, which is really how we love God. I read this quote this week, and I thought it was particularly true of the students that I work with, but I also think it's true for us. So, one of the greatest challenges today is how to feel and know that you are loved when the most real experience is feeling unloved, unheard, and unseen, forsaken, and forgotten. We must know that, that we are understood, we are seen, and we are loved. And this is what Advent does. It invites us on a journey out of our forgetfulness and redirects us on the way of love. Through the memory and the message of Jesus, we are invited on a journey to see again the heart of God, the heart of others, and the heart of our world. We are invited back into the life of love in Jesus, for God so loved the world. I think it's really easy for us to feel unheard, unseen, and unloved. It's really easy to be in a place that says, well, I don't really feel love, and I certainly don't feel like loving others. How many times have we thought, I don't have that in me to give? And I think when we get into that rut, it's because we've ignored the source of love. See, I live four hours away from my entire family. And even though I live in a town where they literally film Hallmark Christmas movies all the time, I still have yet to fall in love with a Christmas tree farmer. Um, I have great friends, but they're busy and they can't be with me at every hour that I want them to. And I can start to compare my life to the tangible things that are happening all around me, and I can completely miss the point. Because I know all of that can fail at any time. Families fight, people are selfish, and life is wildly unpredictable. People are broken and messy and, unfortunately, doomed to fail us. But this love that we're talking about goes so, 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 so much deeper. This love goes deeper than good feelings, the romantic butterflies, and the commercialized parts of the season. We have access to the love of God that casts out all fear, shame, and isolation, so that when the complicated parts of life hit, we're not moving because we're grounded in an unconditional love. To be known and to be loved by God is a vulnerable thing, I know, but it's a gift we can accept anytime, anywhere. And the beautiful thing is that when we do tap into that ultimate source of love, it's transformative. It makes us wanna risk loving broken people just like Jesus did. And hey, we're human. We're gonna get that wrong every once in a while, but those moments are actually when we get to lean into love. 
And I actually think it's like this stealthy gift from God. Not only do we get to turn to God when we feel unloved by the world, but by loving others, even when we don't feel like it, it can be those very moments where God's love radically shows up. And I think that this love, this true love, can hold the tension of all the ways our human love can let us down. I think this God of love can still allow us to feel this wholeness and the lightness of the gift of love and still acknowledge the hurt and the pain that we experience in life because we're not dependent on this love. We're dependent on God's love. We don't have to have it all wrapped up with a pretty bow, with a happy ending, because our happy ending is an eternity in the presence of love itself. And if that part feels very tender to you, that hurt and the pain of life, that's where we would invite you to come on Wednesday to our Blue Christmas service. But in this Advent season, when we remind ourselves of God with us, It's this twofold invitation to receive that love in such a way that transforms both our relationships with God and our relationship with others. Love is what weaves together the hope, joy, and peace of Advent. This love is love that creates and sustains and frees and rescues and redeems and renews and resurrects. In the end... I'm quite convinced that the Christmas story isn't actually the beginning. The beginning is back when God was creating. The beginning was the divine trinity dreaming up you and me. We were made with that tension too. We're made with the dust of the earth, but also the breath of God and his love. And our spirit longs for the forever with God because you and I were formed by love for love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that by believing in him, anyone can have eternal life. It sounds cliche or cheesy sometimes, and maybe even a little bit repetitive, but the reality is it is the most probably unpredictable and the truest part of our faith. I'm going to invite uh, Peter and the team back up to lead us in some worship, but I'm going to pray while they come. Lord, may we not just talk about love, but practice real love. May we be known by our love for you, our love for one another, and even our love for our enemies. May we never settle for simply talking or thinking about love. May we never confuse talking about love with actually loving. Help us to love with actions and in truth, not in spice of these tumultuous days, but because of them. And and may we receive your love, God. Believe it, know it, live it out of that source. Show us a glimpse of your love, this agape, and root us there. May we open our hands and receive what you have already given so that we will love one another out of the love and welcome and extravagance we have already received from you. In your son's name, amen.